This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, The Economist's international editor, and you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. On today's show, the man credited with saving the euro is stepping down. Who are the runners and riders to replace him at the European Central Bank? Neil Woodford, one of London's most famous fund managers, runs into trouble. And Germany's business tycoons prefer staying out of the limelight. We find out why and how they still manage it. First, the head of the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi, steps down in October. The race to replace him is already underway. Choosing a successor means finding someone not just with the requisite economic credentials, but with political skills as well. Rashina Shambog is our economics correspondent, and she's been taking a look at who the runners and riders might be. Hi, Rashina. Hi, Simon. Firstly, why does Draghi have to go? Well, his eight-year term is up, and the ECB rules don't allow a president to have a second term. And... As for the significance of the job, say it's political, I suppose, what, 19 member countries of the euro, 25 members of the ECB's governing board. He must spend most of his time, whoever it is, just trying to find a consensus. Yes, I think you're right that it is mostly a political role. If you think of the big decisions that Mr Draghi has taken in in his eight-year term, one was the whatever-it-takes statement in 2012 at the peak of the eurozone crisis. This is the ECB will do whatever it takes to save the euro. Exactly. The commitment to buy unlimited amounts of sovereign bonds if a country gets into trouble, that was very much something that required political savvy to ensure that you know the heads of leader states would be on board and a lot of the governing council would be on board. As it happens, there were a couple of quite vocal dissenters, but nevertheless, it took that political skill to make that announcement at that time. And what about the selection process? Is that primarily a political one as well? Is it just thrown into the pot of all these Euro jobs that are coming up, the head of the commission, the head of the council and so on? Is it just one bargaining chip among the big players in the EU to play with? It's always a political decision. Individual member states will make nominations and then the countries have to whittle down that list to one. This time round, what complicates things even further is that Mr Draghi steps down at a time when we've just had the European elections and other top European jobs are up for grabs. So there is a risk that it does become part of that bigger horse trading. And let's get on to some some runners and riders. I suppose the obvious question is, isn't it time for a German? It's a fair point. A lot of people do make that argument. Um, In the 20 years of the ECB, or 21 now, the Eurozone's largest country, Germany, has not put forward a president. We've had a Dutchman, a Frenchman and an Italian so far. 
And Jens Weidmann, who's the head of the Bundesbank, would, I think, be Angela Merkel's um, preferred candidate. The issue, though, is that he does have perhaps a black mark on his record. He was a very vocal opponent of the whatever-it-takes commitment. He went as far as testifying against the ECB in court. And there is a question about whether, you know, if a crisis were to hit when he were president, if markets would start to doubt his commitment to whatever it takes. We've had, as you say, Dutch, French and Italian. Are they all ruled out or are there, for example, still French candidates in the pot? The oddities of European politics, if you like, are such that sometimes uh, the nationality will be used as a bar for certain candidates. But a couple of French names are being seen as potential sort of compromise candidates, maybe. One is the current Banque de France governor, Francois Villeroy de Gallo. And a second contender is thought to be Benoit Curé who is currently on the ECB's executive board and head of its market operations. And who else beyond those candidates? There are a couple of Finnish contenders. One is Olli Rehn, who's the current head of the Bank of Finland, and the other is Erki Lekkonen, who was previously the governor of the Bank of Finland. There seem some obvious omissions from, from this list. I mean, an obvious one is any women. Another is any Southern Europeans, really. The names that I've just mentioned, that's not the full list. I mean, we don't actually know who the candidates are. You know, there's no formal application process, unlike the Bank of England. So there are a few names that I haven't mentioned that are being discussed. But you're right, the ECB does have an issue in that there aren't very many women candidates being discussed. I think there are only two women at the moment on the ECB's 25 Strong Governing Council, which, you know, is is a problem. The natural pool of candidates seems to be the heads of the national central banks and female representation amongst that group is, is just very, very poor. Perhaps the encouraging thing is if you look at the deputy central bank governors, then we are seeing more women and perhaps that's a good sign, if not this time around, then in eight years' time. The other question is, you know, it's considered to be the turn this time around of a northerner because we've had Draghi, who is Italian. The current vice president is a Spaniard. There's a sense that really, you know, the southern countries, it's not even worth thinking about potential candidates from there. Now, I don't suppose you're going to tell us whom the economist is going to endorse, but could you give us some idea of the strengths and weaknesses of these leading candidates? I'd like to leave listeners in suspense so that they can wait until their copy of The Economist arrives to know who we're endorsing. But I could definitely say something about what sorts of qualities are important. Economic expertise obviously matters. Somebody with a good knowledge of economics and the markets and some experience of policymaking will definitely be an advantage. But it's not all about that. It requires some political skill. You need the right degree of judgment in times of crisis to know when to make announcements like whatever it takes and you know how to think outside of the box and think of other policies that the ECB should be considering, especially at a time when interest rates are rock bottom. Quantitative easing might be reaching its limits. So what else can the ECB do? And then also you need a degree of political leadership. And that matters more at the ECB than at other central banks because of the rather unique structure of the of the Eurozone, which doesn't have one political authority that you can speak to. You have to speak to 19 governments of uh, member states and their populations and convince them that what you're doing is right. Rachina, thank you very much. And as Rachina said, you can find out whom The Economist is going to endorse in this race by buying this week's issue of The Economist, or why not subscribe? 
try out our offer. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Next, the stock market is a risky, complicated place. For more than a century, many investors have trusted financial experts to pick the best shares for them in return for a hefty fee. But even the experts can get it badly wrong. Over the past week, Neil Woodford, one of London's best-known fund managers, suspended withdrawals from his equity income fund after being inundated with demands from investors wanting to withdraw their money. Philip Coggan, our Bartleby communist, has been writing about this and is in the studio. Hello, Phil. Hello, Simon. You've been writing about this specifically, but you've been writing about this topic for years. Yes. You? I mean, is this another one bit the dust, that active fund managers are a, an endangered species? It is. And Neil Woodford was often cited by his defenders as the exception to the rule, the one fund manager who demonstrated it was possible to be smart more than half the time and to outperform regularly. And that's why a lot of people put money in his funds. And that's why this is such a seminal moment. And he really illustrates the two great problems that you have if you're trying to beat the market long term. What specifically led to this fund being closed? There are two problems. The first of all is the fundamental problem that as an active fund manager, it's easier to beat the market if you're small because you can only own a limited number of stocks and they're not likely to resemble the market. As you get bigger and bigger, it's harder to do it. And Neil Woodford tried to get around this problem by having a lot of money in small unquoted stocks. The difficulty is if you don't outperform and people want to take the money out of your fund, then those small unquoted stocks are very difficult to sell. And there is a mismatch between the type of fund he was running, a mutual fund, open-ended fund, where you can get your money out in theory every day and the kind of stocks he was owning where it might take weeks to sell them. When you get a flurry of redemptions like that, then it's very difficult. You have to start selling the illiquid stocks and he couldn't do it. One of the things that's come under scrutiny is his use of the very small stock exchange in Guernsey. What was he doing there? Yes. So there's a rule in Europe about how much you can own in stocks that aren't quoted on any stock exchange. And that is you can't own more than 10%. But if you can find a stock exchange that will list the companies, then that counts as being quoted. And Guernsey stocks had about 8% of his fund. But this is a very small exchange. So in practical terms, though this was in line with the letter of the law, the spirit of the law wasn't really being met here because these stocks were too difficult to sell. And it's just been proved they're too difficult to sell because that's why he had to suspend the fund. Another thing he's under attack for is that he is apparently still charging fees for managing this money. I mean, on the face of it, that sounds outrageous. You give him your money, you can't get it back, and he's continuing to charge you for for holding it. Is it as bad as that, the insult to injury school of fund management? I I think you're absolutely right, yes. Others have called on him to uh, suspend the fees. Hargreaves Lansdowne, which was the big 
investment advisor that backed him for a long period. And this should have happened. He's got it wrong, you know, maybe with the best of intentions, trying to pick stocks that he thought would deliver money for his clients, I'm sure. But still, he got it wrong. And therefore, it shouldn't be the investors who pay the penalty for this. They shouldn't be being charged a fee for not being able to get at their money. And you mentioned Hargreaves Lander. I mean, how, how much of a penalty are they going to pay for this? Because they have been closely identified with Yes, investors. quite a big one, I think. They had the funds as, because more than one fund, as one of their wealth 50, the top funds they thought in the market. So a lot of their private clients would invest it that way. They also had it in multi-manager funds where they offer a fund to clients and they charge a fee for it. They had over 400 million in one of these funds just in the Woodford Fund. And that, of course, is money that's now locked up. So Hargreaves Lansdowne was selling itself on its ability to pick the best experts. And it's shown that it hasn't been expert in doing that. So uh, its shares, it's a big company in the FTSE 100, have uh, taken a bit of a beating from it. And I think there are broader lessons, too, which the regulators are starting to look at as to whether or not it's appropriate to have illiquid shares in such a vehicle. And I think the Financial Conduct Authority, which is the UK's regulator, will have to do something about this because clearly this problem could occur at other funds and we don't want to see this happen again. And to finish where we started, I mean, what do you think this means for the future of the active fund management industry? It looks like uh, another death blow. It does. They've been losing a lot of market share to passive funds, those that try and track an index and have much lower fees. The argument for the active fund was, well, you know, you can pick someone who beats the market. Well, most funds don't beat the market. There's very little persistence in beating the market among those who do for a short time. And, you know, it's a bit like tossing the coin. You know, you can find someone who tossed heads 10 times in a row. Doesn't mean they're going to toss it heads 11th time in a row. So it's sensible for most investors to concentrate on just owning the equity market and at the lowest possible cost. And that means passive management. Thank you very much, Phil. Thank you. Next, how many American tycoons can you name? You might well recognise a picture of Jeff Bezos, for example. And French people, at least, would recognise Bernard Arnault of LVMH and Britain's Philip Green of the troubled Arcadia Group. But how about German billionaires? Germany has more super-rich than any other country in Europe. But they are a shy bunch who tend to shun the glare of publicity. Wendelin von Bredow is The Economist's European business and finance correspondent. Hello, Wendelin. Hello, Simon. So, yeah, I I was playing a little parlour game with myself, which was there used to be one of how many famous Belgians can you name? And I find that there are more of them than there are German tycoons. There's so many famous German brands around. And I was thinking famous German shops in London, the discounters, Aldi, Lidl. And I don't even know who's behind them. Are, Are they German billionaires? There are, but contrary to, say, um, billionaires in France or indeed in the UK, one doesn't know them, one doesn't know who they are. Often not even a picture exists of these German billionaires because they're extremely private and extremely secretive. Can you name a few names? Yes, for instance, there is the Ryman family who are in various rankings, either Germany's richest or second richest families. They own, for instance, Pret-à-Manger and other consumer brands. They never show their face in public. And they're one of the maybe most obsessively private families in Germany. Another family 
ist die Albrecht uh, Family of, of Aldi Fame, Aldi, the big German discounter. And again, they remain very much an obscure presence in Germany. So why is this? Is this something about German billionaires or is it something maybe about the German press, which has less appetite for covering rich people and celebrities than, say, in, in Britain and, and America? It's a mix, first of all, of German history, some of these families having thrived under the Nazis and not really wanting to talk about their role during those 12 years that changed German history forever. It's also got to do with the fact that many very big and very successful German companies are not listed, so they don't have to communicate with the press or with the public, and so many choose not, not to do so. Then some are just very shy. They think they can't communicate well and they prefer not to. The German press tends to be centre-left and rather hostile towards the rich. And so even those who then do venture out and talk to journalists often find it a very unpleasant experience, so they don't repeat it. Could I just press you on the first of those a bit? It seems extraordinary that we've just celebrated 70 years since D-Day and the, towards the end of the Second World War. And 70 years on... Families are still not clear of the history of how some family fortunes were made? Yes, I was surprised when I found out about that. I mean, the Ryman family is actually a good example. They only recently asked a historian to really look into their family history and what they found was quite shocking to them. And they, they, they really didn't know that their ancestors, or seemed to not know their ancestors, used um, uh, a slave labor, basically, in their factories, or, or, or certainly prisoners of war under slave-like conditions. And what about popular attitudes to wealth? I mean, in America, they seem pretty much positive. In Britain, I suppose there is something of a legacy of, of snobbism that inherited wealth somehow less grubby than wealth people have made for themselves. What's it like in Germany? Wealth is something certainly not to showcase, not to talk about. Rich people in Germany tend to live in, in, in quite small houses if they can. They may have, you know, castles abroad, but in Germany they live in a modest villa. So it's got to do also maybe with Protestantism, with the Protestant ethos. They try as hard as they can not to be noticed, not to be seen, and to be as normal or as, as, as middle class as possible. It's very attitudinal, it's very negative, and that's why you also don't find any entrepreneurs really in German politics, because they just wouldn't get elected. Friedrich Merz, who was the big rival of um, Annegret Kamp-Karrenbauer, who is now, at the moment at least, Angela Merkel's likely successor, he is actually, or used to be, a very successful and rich private equity supremo. And he hid this and really tried to play down the fact that he was extremely successful in business, which in America almost certainly would not have been the case. You know, he would have been proud. He would have said, you know, I built this, I've done well. And now I'm running for political office. In Germany, he was really trying to hide it. And then he was widely ridiculed because he said at some point he was, he said, and I'm middle class, but of course he flies in a private jet. So that's not strictly speaking the definition of middle class. And people thought that was very amusing and, and, and made fun of him. And what about the, the next generation of, of tycoons? I mean, presumably a lot of this family wealth will pass on to their children. 
Yes, and one of the things they do in order to keep the strict code of silence and the privacy is that they draw up family constitutions and you have to sign them or family members sign them at the age of 16 or 18. And one of the things they have to commit to is not to talk to the media, not to use social media and basically to remain hidden. And some families are, of course, much more private than others. I mean, the Raimunds, for instance, are known to be extremely private, the Albrechts too, and some a little less. But it's something that about a third of Germany's rich families do. They have a family constitution with a strict code of silence. Well, congratulations, Wendelin, on getting some of these very shy billionaires to talk to you. And thanks for telling us about it. <laughs> it was quite hard. Thanks, Wendelin. Pleasure. And that's all for this week's Money Talks. Thanks for listening. And while you're with us, please take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.